Well, good morning, Covenant. We are uh, glad to be coming to you again, albeit virtually, but it is so good to have done body life together through uh, even this week, the Isolation Olympics. What a blast that was. It started for me with Valerie Ottinger showing what the Isolation Olympics, she took the, uh, you know, the interconnected rings and said, "Uh uh-uh, social distancing, and they're all separated. I mean, just the humor that you guys have demonstrated over the last week. Uh, Don Patterson, you're a genius. Uh, Your blind artwork, which was supposed to be the way most of you interpreted it, draw something while blindfolded. Uh, Don interpreted as a cow that had a blindfold on it. And I mean, just y'all's sense of humor, your puns, uh, your musical talent. Who knew that Josiah Culley was so competitive that he would organize his family to try to accomplish the entire list on the very first day? Josiah, you're a beast, son. Uh, what, it, what fun it's been uh, just seeing this aspect of one another and learning to know each other better through something as uh, silly and fun as Isolation Olympics. We're going to take a, a hiatus for about four weeks from the Book of Romans. We've been in the Book of Romans since the 1st of September. But it's kind of a a natural time, a good time for us to take a break. Uh, We're at a natural pause point in the book of Romans where it shifts from all the doctrinal teaching to now the last fourth of the book is very practical in its application of those doctrines. And uh, so it's a good time for us to pause from that perspective. But also, more importantly, we just want to recognize that uh, we are in the middle of a major crisis in our world, in our nation, in our community. And it's at times like this that the church needs to speak loudly and speak into these kinds of situations so that we are able to see uh, what God is doing and call people to repentance and call people to a more vibrant walk with our Heavenly Father. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22 to near the end of the chapter. There's four different stories. We're going to see four stories of people who faced uncertainty in their lives, uncertainty that created all kinds of emotions, despair, disgust, fear, loneliness, anxiety, all the things that many of us have been experiencing over the last month and a half or so. Uh, We're going to see a a man who's uh, just, his life seems to be falling apart because his child's life is in danger. Uh, We'll see a woman who has a disease, and that disease uh, so affected her life that she was a pariah within her society. Her life was one of isolation and where people would not want to be around her. Does that sound kind of familiar in what we're going through today? And and then we'll see another man who's again, was a pariah in his society, a life of loneliness and anxiety and fear because he was under spiritual oppression and bondage. But this morning, we're going to see a group of men, the, what we know as the apostles of the church, the foundation of the church. While they were at the very beginning of their training with the Lord Jesus, 13 men in a boat who experience a storm. So in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, let me read the passage for us this morning. <clears throat> One day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling uh, with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. 
Jesus said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to your word this morning. Uh, May it feed us. May it leave us changed. May we consider what you have to say to us today. Would you speak through me? Would your spirit move in the hearts of those who listen this morning? Would you open eyes that may be blind? May you open ears that have perhaps turned somewhat deaf towards your voice? And may we, may, may we be touched by you today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, this story teaches us several things. Uh, One of the very first things, it's kind of an obvious one, but it's one that I don't want us to overlook this morning. And, And that is simply this, that, you know, storms in life are inevitable. There's literal storms like the the disciples experienced. There's figurative storms that come into our lives. And whether they are literal or figurative storms, they produce uncertainty and fear and anxiety. And, And this is just an inevitable aspect of life. The disciples experienced a literal storm, and and we shouldn't downplay the severity of what was occurring in their life. Just to set some context for you, where we are in the ministry of Jesus is that he has just finished delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And here he has preached this sermon to the people, and now he is uh, deciding that he wants to get in a boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the northeastern side, and uh, take the boat over there and do ministry on that, in that portion of the region. As they're traveling across the, the water, a storm breaks out. And, and we, should, we should understand that what they were in was you know, not like our boats today. You know, a year ago, uh, I was uh, fishing with, or at Father's Day actually, with Kyle Walters and Mike Rowland and uh, Kyle's sons, Andrew and Brian, and a couple of other guys. And, and we were 30 miles out, out from Sebastian Inlet, and we were in a nice, you know, 32 foot boat with, you know, a couple of outboards, of, you know, 900 horsepower of power on this thing. And it had radar, a storm came up, and Kyle just, you know, he skirts around the storm with this radar. We see it coming, no problem, no danger. You know, and, and there's six of us in this boat. Well, imagine 13 people being in a boat like this. I mean, this is something that was found in the 1980s. It's literally a boat from the time of Jesus. It was was preserved in the mud there in the Sea of Galilee on the bank. And when the waters receded, it uncovered this boat. And this literally goes back to the time of Jesus. And and you can see it in its restored fashion here. You notice that's not a very big boat. It's 25 feet long. It's seven feet wide. That's significantly smaller than the boat I was in on Father's Day, right? And it didn't have 900 horsepowers of mercury on it. It had, you know, a sail and it had oars, you know? And and so let's understand that these guys, many of whom are professional fishermen, right? They've lived their life on the water and they experience a storm. In this portion of the Sea of Galilee, it's ringed by mountains and hills. And these mountains and hills, they, they funnel the wind. And if you've ever been in between buildings, you know, when a wind comes through buildings, it, it increases its ferocity and the strength of the wind. And that's what happened to these guys. I've been there where I've seen the Sea of Galilee go from being flat calm to in just a, just a few moments, a four or five foot chop and white capping, and it's a dangerous body of water. These 
They had spent their life on the water. They're fishermen, and they are petrified. They're at their wits' end. They'd worked as hard as they could to get through this storm, and they understood that the chances of them surviving were very, very slim. Some of the parallel passages help us get the flavor of what's going on. In, in Matthew chapter 8, uh, suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Okay, you, you see the desperation here. And, and Mark, Mark was probably the original first gospel written, and, and in some cases, Luke's account draws from the book of Mark. And this is Peter's testimony, and Mark wrote it down. And, and Peter says, soon a fierce storm came up. Now, this is a, a fisherman for life. He made his living on his bottle, uh, the body of water. A fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Do you not care that we're going to drown? Isn't that interesting? You know, this is something that oftentimes we find in the scriptures. The psalmist uh, in the middle of a trial and a storm says, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. You know, one of the most distressing aspects of a storm, whether it's a literal or personal storm of life, is it seems that there's a period of time where God is silent in that storm. And when that happens, our natural reaction our, to God's silence is a form of accusatory fear, right? Do you not care? Wake up. What's wrong with you? Don't you understand we're about to die? We're about to drown? Don't you, don't you love us? Don't you love me? Don't you care for me? You've betrayed me. Or how about this one? Hurry up. Fix this. Right? Uh, several years back, I remember seeing a procedure that was being done on a, a television by a doctor. He was working on an epileptic. He had, he had created a, a, a therapy for those who have epilepsy. And so on this, this program, here's this man sitting in the chair. He's wide awake. His skull is cut back. His brain is visible to all of us. And the doctor is working on his brain. And he's doing electrical things here and there. And, and he's provoking responses. The dude is awake during this whole time, right? Because, you know, he's not, he's not hurting or anything. But in the middle of this, of this procedure, the man got frustrated. He was getting exasperated by how long it was taking. And he finally, out of frustration, says to the doctor, Hey, doctor, hurry up and finish this. Now, you think about that for a second, right? I mean, you think about the, who's the person in the room who's the expert on the procedure, who, who knows the human brain, right? It's the doctor. And, and if there's anybody that you don't want to be telling to hurry up, it's the dude working on your brain, man. But, you know, you just can't help it. The frustration of the moment, the emotion of the moment just bubbles up. Hurry up. Fix this. And that's what we, that's what we do to God. You think about that for a moment. In the middle of our storm, who's the expert? Who knows the beginning, the middle, the end? 
Who knows why and how it's all going to work out and its purpose? It's God, right? So do, do you think God is going to show up late to rescue us and help us? I mean, do you think his, you know, his alarm clock, his, you know, his, his phone battery died during the middle of the night and the battery, you know, the alarm didn't go off. And so, oh, I'm late to helping Jerry with his storm. I better hurry up here. No, of course not. Right. God is never late and he's never early. He's exactly on time. So why would we want to hurry him? It's because of our natural sinful nature that really wants to be in control in a time when we know we're not in control. So there are storms of life, whether they're figurative, whether they're literal, they are inevitable. And these inevitable storms, they create uncertainty. They create anxiety. They can create deep, distressing fear. The story shows us this. The story also shows us that the storms reveal that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of creation. Verse 24 says, and they went and woke him saying, master, master, we're perishing. He woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. And the end of verse 25 says, and they were afraid. By the way, now their fear is not because of the storm. It's because of the demonstration of God, of Jesus's sovereign power as the God of the universe. And they see this And this scares them, and they marvel at him, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? In a moment, in a miraculous demonstration of power, the sleeping Jesus is revealed as the sovereign Lord of creation, the one who rebukes the storms, instantly calms the seas, showing himself to be the Lord of the storm. Physical storms like this one, they're under the control of our Lord. Their power actually comes from him. The power of the storm, the psalmist says, is simply derived from God. In Psalm 29, verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The the power of the storm is derived from the Lord of the storm. And certainly the existence of the storm does not negate his sovereignty over that storm. Instead, it reinforces it. The prophets tell us in the book of Lamentations, the book of Amos, that is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Jeremiah, excuse me, Amos tells us when a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? In our modern language, when the weather app alerts us to the uncoming storm, when the sirens in the city sound telling us to take refuge, right? Do we not tremble? Do we not get anxious? When the disaster comes to a city, read the last six words with me, church, has not the Lord caused it? The storms that we experience, the tornadoes that even happened this week in Chattanooga, Catherine and I were married and lived in Chattanooga the first year of our marriage, and we knew the neighborhood that was so devastated by those tornadoes. And you look at that and, and people want to say it's a fluke, it's an accident, it's, 
You know, where was God? God was exactly where he's always been. He's sovereign over that storm. The storm does not negate God's sovereignty. The storm reinforces God's sovereignty, regardless of where those storms come from. You know, personal storms, they tend to be different than the literal physical storms. Literal physical storms, we obviously know we have no control over it. They come to us and we hunker down and we go through it. But how about personal storms? Well, they too are under the control of God. Sometimes these storms, they come about because they are the consequences of our own foolishness, our own sin, our own rebellion. You know, God rules the universe with laws. One of those laws is what is known as the law of the harvest, right? What you harvest is because of what you plant. You plant something, you reap it. You sow it, you reap it. You plant it, you harvest it. And when we plant seeds in our lives or in the lives of others that are from sin and rebellion or foolishness or a lack of wisdom, there's a harvest that comes as a consequence of those plantings and those decisions. We have to acknowledge this. We have to own that many times the personal storms that we experience in our lives are the consequence of our own sin and rebellion or foolishness or lack of wisdom or haste or impatience or whatever it may be. Sometimes the source of these storms are the, is the fruit of other people's sin and rebellion. Some of you, you have had incredible storms in your personal life, and it's because someone sinned against you, and seeds were planted in your life, and, and there's a harvest to that sin. There's consequences to this. Sometimes it's because of our own sin and foolishness. Sometimes it's because of others. But what I want you to hear me this morning about is two things in relation to this. One, no matter what the source of that personal storm is, when it happens and it hits you, be assured that God is not expressing his wrath and his condemnation toward you. When you go through that personal storm, even, even if it's a storm of your own making because of your sin, understand that storm is not God's punishment and wrath towards you because of that sinful decision. The scriptures are clear. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus bore that wrath of that sinful decision. Jesus took the punishment of God for that foolish, rebellious decision that we make that ends up resulting in pain in our life or in the life of others. So the storm, the consequence is not God's wrath towards us. Not at all. Remember that. Because the enemy will whisper in your ear, God doesn't love you. God's angry at you. God's punishing you because you did this. And he will encourage you to adopt a works righteousness mentality that we earn God's favor by you know, not messing up. Remember this. Also remember that whether it's physical or personal, whatever the source is, Whatever the nature of the storm is, God is absolutely sovereign over that storm and promises that it will advance His eternal plan in your life and in His kingdom for our good and His glory. This is the fact of storms in general. They accomplish a good purpose in God's kingdom and in our life. Several reasons that we can see. The most important, perhaps, right off the bat, is that the storms remind us 
that we are not God. The Lord is God, and we are not God. If there's anything that strips us down to our basic state of dependence upon God, it is a storm. And let's face it, most of us, we have an illusion of being in control of our lives. We think that our future is totally up to us and that if we just press this button and check these boxes, then presto whammo, we have a great life. It doesn't work that way. We are not God. God is God. He reminds us of this in Isaiah chapter 45 when he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity, and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. The storms remind us of who's actually in charge of who is God and who isn't God. You know, this week, John Piper, or recently, maybe the last couple of weeks, John Piper wrote an essay about the coronavirus, and he brought out a great reminder that I want to share with you this morning about the purpose behind the storm and how God works through storms for his glory and our good. He essentially, Piper essentially says that the storms are physical object lessons that teach us how horrible and offensive sin is to God, to a holy God. I mean, think about it like this. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, and we looked at this, the garden last week in the Easter message, and and, and you have humanity's rebellion against God. This is a, a moral, spiritual decision that Adam and Eve make to rebel and sin against God. And yet, the, the response to this spiritual moral decision, the consequences are manifested in the physical realm. I mean, and essentially think of it like this. Why did God turn everything upside down in the physical realm and creation itself so that we have things like tornadoes and pandemics and, and all of the horrors that we see in our physical world. Why was the response of God in the physical realm rather than spirit? Why didn't he just you know, address it at the spiritual level and you know, leave the birds and the animals and everything else alone? Why not preserve that? And, and, and the answer is really very simple is to help humanity see how treasonous our sin really is. You see, God's holiness is so far above us, we cannot comprehend it. We have difficulty understanding how absolutely horrific our rebellion and our sin is to God. But one way that we can kind of begin to get our heads around this is to see it maybe from this perspective. If the consequences of the sin are this horrific in the physical realm that we experience, if the consequences are this horrific, how abominable must the cause of these things actually be? You know, we essentially we downplay the stench of our sin. We downplay the holiness of God. 
the transcendent holiness and righteousness and goodness of God. We craft and we shape to something that's acceptable to us. But this reminds us that no, he is so far above us. His holiness is so high above us that to begin to understand it, look at the consequences of our rebellion. We see this in a very graphic physical object lesson. Jesus was on the cross here for eternity. He had enjoyed this perfect love relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And at that point in time, in physical time and space, when our sins are put upon Jesus, we see the horror of sin in the words of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me after an eternity of a love relationship? You, you turn your back. Why? Because of the abominable nature of sin. Jesus experiences this physical torture and death and loneliness as a consequence. And in the same way, the storms of our lives, the literal storms, the personal storms, they are God graciously showing us, trying to help us to see how holy He is and how horrible sin actually is. And in the same way, these storms, they call us to repent. They recall us to repent of our sinfulness. They call us to trust in God for our salvation. We read a, a moment ago from uh, the beginning of Isaiah 45. Later in the chapter, God asked this, Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Now listen to how he says we're to respond to this time of judgment that was coming into the lives of God's people and to the nation of Israel. Turn to me, repent, and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. So for some of you this morning, I want you to hear me very clearly. The pandemic that we are experiencing right now, for some of us, is, is God's gracious, merciful invitation to you to turn from sin, to turn from self-lordship, to turn from thinking that you're God of your own life, that you're in control, that your destiny is due to you and to what you say and what you think and what you decide, and instead understand who we really are. We're born into this world, sinners in need of redemption, and the pandemic is a merciful act of God to you to turn to Him, to confess your helplessness, to trust in Christ, commit to the Lord of the storm the one who's sovereign over it all. This is God's merciful act for those who don't know Christ. And at the same time, there's a remedial purpose behind storms. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4 that if you're a Christ follower, a storm does one thing, but if you're a Christ rejecter, it's another. For the, for the Christ follower, the storm is an agent for purification. 
If you're a Christ rejecter, the storm can very much be a form of God's judgment upon you. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 4. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. He says we're going through persecution. We're going through difficult times. What's happening? God is evaluating his people, his church, and he sees the need for purification. And then he begins, and he says, and if judgment begins with us, if this is God's evaluation of his people, that there needs to be correction among his people to purify us, to make us into the people that we are called to be, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? If the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? Someone sent out a, a mail out recently, and it was a Christian ministry, and the headline blared, the coronavirus is not from God. This breaks his heart. He would never do this to us, was essentially the theme of the article. That they could not be more mistaken. The testimony of Scripture is that God will sovereignly send storms, in some cases, into our lives, into the lives of his people in order to purify them and put them on mission. For example, in the book of Acts, you see the church fat and happy, content with one another. And so what does God do? He rises up a time of persecution where people actually lost their lives in the church in order to scatter them throughout the region and throughout the world so that that they would obey the Great Commission and the instructions of Acts chapter 1. It took persecution to purify and to help the church and God's people to see what was most important What do you think God might be saying to us this morning? Through this time, I know I've reflected, I've seen in my own life where I love this life. I'm comfortable with my existence. I I rely upon myself way too much. And I'll gratify my own desires when My time, my talents, my treasures, in some cases, could be better used for the sake of the kingdom. How many times are we distracted, even on a Sunday morning, and a large percentage of our church body isn't here because of something else in our life or society that that that, that moment we deem more important than gathering together with God's people and worshiping Him together? Pandemics have a way of helping us to realize how important it is for us to even be able to come together and fellowship with one another and worship with one another. It's not just an empty ritual. It's something that is vital for our lives. And so things like pandemics, oh yes, God is sovereign over them. And oh yes, many times God is the source behind this, these types of things. And they are purifying his people or they are an expression of his judgment against society that is rebelling and sinning against him. It's a wake-up call. So we know that storms are inevitable. 
They produce anxiety and fear. We know that the Lord is sovereign over all of these storms. He's in control of them. Finally, this morning, I want you to see that an intense storm becomes overwhelming when we respond with fear instead of faith in our sovereign Lord. Don't overlook in the middle of this story where the disciples are hysterical and they're afraid and justifiably so, don't overlook the compassionate and gracious response that Jesus gives to these men. They come to him, according to Mark, Lord, don't you care? I mean, I don't know about you, but if somebody came to me who I really love and I've been investing my life in, and they start their question with, don't you care? I'm going to be a little miffed. Let me be honest with you, right? I probably would not have responded the way Jesus did. I would have said something sarcastic, but Jesus, he says to them, verse 25, where is your faith? He uses this time of stress and storm to ask the most important question of these men. It's a question meant to help them see their need and a source and solution to their need. Where is your faith? faith? That's the question we can all ask ourselves this morning. Where is our faith? For some of us, the issue is one of existence. Our faith has been in ourselves instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you this morning to begin to pray and ask Christ to give you a heart that would trust him that would believe and commit to him. For some of us, it's an issue of existence. For others of us, it's an issue of focus or of application of our faith. We are focused on other things, on ourselves, rather than on our Lord. We know things, but we're not applying them. It's kind of like what the disciples said, Lord, we believe, forgive us for our unbelief. That's the testimony of some of us this morning. I know Way too often, that's my testimony. So how? So the question really becomes one, in a storm, how do we exercise faith in Jesus? I want to give you just three simple, personal, practical applications to conclude this morning. First of all, in a storm, we exercise faith in Jesus by dwelling on the storm that he endured for our behalf. Whenever we enter into these times of life, any type of a personal trial, a literal storm, personal storm, we get through it by turning our eyes to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, to a people who are undergoing persecution. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame that it brought, and is now ascended and sitting down on the right hand of the throne of God. I find the book of Hebrews so comforting during times like this because the book of Hebrews focuses us on Jesus, on his sacrifice, on his ascension, on his present ministry for us at the right hand of the Father as our high priest. And so to apply our faith during a storm Think about the storm Jesus endured. Think about his ministry. Meditate upon these truths and the way the scriptures connect the dots for us in Jesus' present ministry. Secondly, confessing our uncertainty of the why, but our confidence in the who. 
We exercise our faith by not pretending we aren't going through a a difficult situation. Uh, We exercise our faith not by avoiding hard questions. We exercise our faith by asking hard questions. We exercise our faith and apply our faith to the situation that we're in by coming before the Father and asking why. And calling out to him for why. And and, and when he's silent during those periods, as the psalmist did, asking and pleading with our Father, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Give me your comfort. Help me to understand. Nothing wrong with asking these things and meditating along these lines, but doing it with confidence in the who? In the Lord. As the sovereign king over the trial. You see, there's a big difference between asking why, what's going on, open my eyes, show me what's happening, reveal yourself to me when it's coming from a posture of somebody who's worshiping the person who is Lord of the storm, who endured the storm for our behalf. It's a completely different perspective. And when we come from that posture, we will see our faith grow purified and strengthened during a storm. We exercise our faith by dwelling on a storm he endured, by confessing our uncertainty of the why, but our confidence in the who. And finally, we exercise faith in Jesus by seeking God's kingdom glory in our storm. There is a reason, many reasons, to be clear, why God brings things like pandemics into a society, why God brings storms into our lives. There's more than one reason, but I can assure you of this. All of the reasons why God brings a storm into our lives and the life of our community and our church, it is ultimately to expand his kingdom in our hearts and our community and our nation and to bring him glory. So we have a... a, a, a a choice when storms come. We can hunker down and and take a me-first mentality and focus on ourselves only, or we can lift our eyes and see where is God wanting to move in our life, in the life of our family, in our community, and surrendering ourselves to that. Let me encourage you this week. As you think about this storm in these men's lives, the storm that we're experiencing right now, Ask God, Lord, what do you want to do through me during this pandemic? How do you want to make yourself known to me? What are you trying to tell me? How do you want to use me? Let me encourage you to respond this week by renewing your surrender to our Lord Jesus Christ who endured the storm for us so that we might be reconciled to God. Heavenly Father, Though we do not always enjoy your bitter providence, we do know that it is your providence, as painful as it may be, as distressing as it may be, to us, as bitter as it may taste, we know that ultimately you have promised to bring about good. Give us the the faith we need to believe this. Lord, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. God, we ask that you would redeem this time of isolation, of social distancing, of our lives being turned upside down. 
Lord, we crave community like never before. May, may we come out of this storm more dedicated to your body, to, to gathering together to worship you, to give you the glory that you're due, Lord. You're reminding us how awesomely powerful and holy you are. May we respond together in worship. May we recommit ourselves to serving one another and loving one another and doing the same for those that we live near or work with in our community. We ask that you would do this, Lord, and glorify yourself in us and through us. Make us into your people. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.